a wider welcome, a more faithful understanding of holiness, a deeper sense of purpose, an expanded understanding of Scripture, a stretched and strengthened faith, a life leading and headed toward life. This is just some of what happens when we step into, when we embrace the new thing that God is always doing in our lives and in the world. Look, I'm doing a new thing. It springs up. Do you not see it? That's been our anthem during this season of Easter. God is always after transformation and renewal and resurrection. And so far, we've talked about God doing a new thing out there in the world and us responding to it. Today, we look at what happens when the new thing God is doing is us and in us. Let us pray. God, open our hearts and minds to your word for us this day. We pray that it would take root there, that it would grow us, transform us, that we might live for you and bear fruit for your kingdom. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Two scripture readings this morning, both focusing on the person of Paul. Uh, First reading is from the book of Acts chapter 26. Um, verses 1 through 24, and then Philippians 3. Listen for God's word. Listen for God's word. Agrippa said to Paul, You may speak for yourself. So Paul gestured with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself especially fortunate that I stand before you today as I offer my defense concerning all the accusations the Jews have brought against me. This is because you understand well all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I ask you to listen to me patiently. Every Jew knows the way of life I have followed since my youth, because from the beginning I was among my people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time. If they wanted to, they could testify that I followed the way of life set out by the most exacting group of our religion. I am a Pharisee. Today I'm standing trial because of the hope and the promise God gave our ancestors. This is the promise our 12 tribes hope to receive as they earnestly worship day and night. The Jews are accusing me, King Agrippa, because of this hope. Why is it inconceivable to you that God raises the dead? I really thought that I ought to oppose the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, in every way possible, and that's exactly what I did in Jerusalem. I locked up many of God's holy people in prison under the authority of the chief priests. When they were condemned to death, I voted against them. In one synagogue after another, indeed all of the synagogues, I would often torture them, compelling them to slander God. My rage bordered on the hysterical as I pursued them even to foreign cities. On one such journey, I was going to Damascus with the full authority of the chief priests. While on the road at midday, King Agrippa, I saw a light from heaven shining around me and my traveling companions. That light was brighter than the sun. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice that said to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? It's hard for you to kick against a spear. Then I said, who are you, Lord? The Lord replied, I am Jesus, whom you are harassing. Get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as my servant and witness of what you have seen and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to open their eyes. Then they can turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those made holy by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I wasn't disobedient to that heavenly vision. Instead, I proclaimed first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem, then to the whole region of Judea and to the Gentiles. My message was that they should change their hearts and lives and turn to God, and that they should demonstrate this change in their behavior. 
Because of this, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to murder me. God has helped me up to this very day. Therefore, I stand here and bear witness to the lowly and the great. I'm saying nothing more than what the prophets and Moses declared would happen, that Christ would suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to my people and to the Gentiles. At this point in Paul's defense, Festus declared with a loud voice, you've lost your mind, Paul. Too much learning is driving you mad. Then from Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, chapter 3, beginning with the, the third verse. These things were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. But even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I have lost everything for Him, but what I lost I think of as sewer trash, so that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. In Christ I have a righteousness that is not my own and that does not come from the law, but rather from the faithfulness of Christ. It is the righteousness of God that is based on faith. This is the Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Paul had people killed and tortured them. And we, we must start there because it shows that God really can do a new thing in anybody. We're introduced to Paul very early in the book of Acts as a man standing on the side, nodding in approval as a follower of Jesus named Stephen is stoned to death. We learn more about Paul uh, through his letters and through the book of Acts. He's a Jew by birth of the tribe of Benjamin. He's circumcised according to the law of Moses. He was a Pharisee, meaning he belonged to a specific, um, a specific super religious sect of, of Jews, a super devout religious man, uh, a part of an order that was committed to reading and interpreting and studying the scriptures and, and obeying the words therein. He had learned under a rabbi named Gamaliel. He was so devout and so religious and so passionate about his faith that he carried out this zeal for God by persecuting early Christians. I really thought I should oppose the name of Jesus in every way possible, he said. So he sought Christians out. He forced them to slander God so that he could bring charges against them. He had them imprisoned. He had them tortured. He had them killed. His entire life, his entire focus, his values, his priorities were all about defending the Jewish faith and stopping this fledgling movement because of his pedigree and his passion as a Pharisee. He thought he was just being faithful. A killer and a torturer, a persecutor of the church. This is not the sort of person you might expect God to do something new in. Aren't there better people to work with? Then again, a tomb isn't the sort of place you would expect God to do something new in either. But God raised Jesus, and this risen Jesus met Paul and changed his heart and life. Paul became a church planter, not persecutor. Jesus proclaimer, not Jesus opposer. There is a changed man, a new person standing before King Agrippa in our scripture passage this morning. 
So how did Paul wind up in custody standing before King Agrippa? Well, long story short, prior to this, during one of his missionary journeys, Paul was confronted by Jews in Asia. They were stirred up by his teaching. They were upset. They made accusations against him that he was teaching against Jewish people, that he was teaching against Jewish law, that he was teaching against the temple. They claimed that he brought Gentiles into the temple. Uh, a crowd seized him in Jerusalem and started beating him. Well, the Roman commanders uh, got word that there was chaos ensuing in Jerusalem. They didn't want any kind of chaos. They came in. They took Paul into custody, intervened, took him into custody, and then he kind of got passed around from, from Roman custody to Jewish leaders, from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and ultimately he ended up appearing before two Roman governors, and then finally King Agrippa shows up and wants to hear from Paul. And so Paul makes his defense before him. And this is Paul's attempt to try and describe the indescribable new thing that God did in him. After vividly laying out the kind of person that he was, he talks about encountering the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He saw a light brighter than the sun. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, why are you harassing me? I am Jesus, the one you are harassing on your feet. I'm appointing you to be a witness. As I'm appointing you as my witness. I will rescue you. I will send you to open people's eyes to tell them to turn to God and change their hearts and lives. And Paul essentially shares that he preached this message of transformation, of change, as a changed man himself. The man telling people to change their hearts and lives and turn to Jesus has experienced this transformation Himself, the resurrected Jesus, resurrecting him. And now Paul is the one being persecuted. Do you get how crazy that is? How dramatic of a turnaround, a reorientation that is? Paul is the one now being persecuted. That's how reoriented his life is. He is now the messenger of the very gospel he was trying to snuff out before. In Philippians, Paul talks about this dramatic change, this transformation, this new thing in, in a different way, using the language of profit and loss, uh, debit and credit. And he lays out who, who, he, uh, who he was in the form of an impressive resume. All the things that he thought were the most important, all the things that he valued, all the things that he thought validated who he was. Super Pharisee, a super Jew. I mean, he was winning at this whole Pharisee thing. And then he met Jesus. God did a new thing in his heart, and all of that flipped. Which is why he says, these things were my assets, but I wrote them off as loss for the sake of Christ. But even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've lost everything for him, but what I've lost, I count as sewer trash so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Now, I'm not a CPA, but I know that the end of a profit loss statement shows the net loss or income showing the extent to which a business is profitable. So Paul is saying that knowing Jesus has reoriented his life and his priorities in such a way that everything that he once would have put on the credit side, he now puts on the debit side. 
in comparison to Jesus. Everything that he once held near and dear, everything that used to occupy first place in his life, everything that used to sit on the throne belongs on the debit side now in comparison to the greatness of Jesus. Jesus is just that much better. God was doing death and resurrection work in Paul, in him, transforming him, his heart, his life, his priorities. Friends, sometimes we are the new thing God is doing. In the mid-18th century, a, um, an Anglican cleric named John Wesley was attending a class meeting on a street called Aldersgate. He was a season of great uncertainty with regards to his faith. He knew about God. He was Oxford educated. He was engaged in all the spiritual disciplines and practices. He felt God was up to something new, maybe in in England, but he lacked a, a strong conviction and sense of God's love for him and assurance of his salvation. When when someone started reading from Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, and the change of in, in the heart that happens by grace through faith. Wesley said that he felt his heart strangely warmed, strangely warmed, and he felt in that moment that he did trust God, God alone for salvation, and that God had taken away even his sins. All of a sudden, Wesley's priorities became singularly focused on the grace of God, universally available to all people. Credits and debits rearranged. God Turns out, wasn't just doing a new thing in England. God was doing a new thing in him. And because of it, Wesley started the Methodist movement. Sometimes we are the new thing God is doing. In 20th century America, a man named Millard Fuller was at rock bottom. From humble beginnings in Alabama, Fuller rose to become a young self-made millionaire by the time that he was 30 years old. But it came at the expense of his health, it came at the expense of his integrity, it came at the expense of his marriage. Then something, or more appropriately, someone, prompted him to reevaluate his life, his values, his direction. He changed drastically. He reconciled with his wife, he renewed his commitment to Jesus. He and his wife decided to sell all of their possessions and give the money to the poor. They moved to Koinonia Farm outside of um, Atlanta, Georgia, where people were looking for practical ways to, uh, to embody Jesus' teaching. With a few others there, Fuller instituted a, a housing ministry where they built modest houses on a no-profit, no-interest basis. God was doing death and resurrection work. In him. God was doing a new thing in him. Credits and debit rearranged. And because of it, Habitat for Humanity was born. Sometimes we are the new thing God is doing. About 20 years ago, uh, when I started at Duke University, I operated in life and in faith like I believed my identity and my worth was determined by what I achieved. Uh, Jesus was insurance for the afterlife and certainly there for help if I needed him. And then slowly but surely, God began, uh, God started to work doing new things in me. 
And my heart changed, and I changed, and my sense of identity and worth changed. It wasn't a dramatic moment like Paul on the road to Damascus, more like a a process, slowly moving parts of my life from the credit side to the debit side because I truly started to treasure and value a relationship, an ongoing relationship with Jesus. And I realized that I would never be more loved than I was right then and there by God, no matter what I did or didn't do or did or didn't achieve. And some things died that needed to, and some things were birthed in the compost, and I was different. Sometimes we are the new thing God is doing. So I wonder, has God ever done a new thing in you that changed your sense of What was most important? Has God ever done something new in you that was like a mini death and resurrection inside of you? Have you been changed by grace? Credits and debits rearranged. Maybe it was through a scripture passage or or sermon, or an experience in worship, or a small group. Maybe it was becoming a parent for the first time, or, or interacting with a friend who's not afraid to speak the truth in love. Maybe it was through serving others. Maybe it was through communion or a time of prayer. And God did a creative work in you. God began a creative work in you, changing you, shaping you, making you more like Jesus. Where you were walking in, in one direction, and God turned you around where your priorities shifted, but where slowly but surely your life started to look different. Maybe you long for this. Maybe you want to experience God doing something new in you. God did it in Paul. God can in you. Ask God to change your heart. Ask God to change your priorities and what you value most. Ask God to get to work. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what God is doing. God is getting the drains right and and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And and you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not really surprised. But presently, God starts knocking the house about in a way that, that hurts and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is God up to? The explanation is that God is building quite a different house than the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but God is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Friends, God does death and resurrection work in us all the time. God does new things in us all the time. It's called grace. Sometimes it's dramatic and sudden like Paul's experience. Other times it's more like a slow unfolding work, like a master carpenter working slowly and carefully day by day to renovate, but surely creating the masterpiece that she wants. God's Holy Spirit works in our hearts to change us, to help us to see and to value what what matters most, what really matters. 
to help us put to death things that do not lead to life and to love and to God, and to renew our hearts so they start to beat like Jesus is, to love like Jesus is, to break like Jesus is, to renew our minds so that we have an imagination for the kingdom of God, to awaken in us a love and a passion for Jesus and others that we didn't even know was there, to, to bring us to a place where we can, where we can look back and say, you know, because of Jesus, because of the new things God has done in my heart, I'm not the same person that I was two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. I've become more Christ-like. My priorities have changed. What I value most changed. The way I parent changed. The way I treat colleagues changed. The way I handle conflict changed. The way I live in my neighborhood changed. My allegiances changed. The way I think about myself and my identity changed. The way I define success changed. The way I deal with failure changed. The way I spend my time and my money changed. The way I lead changed. The way I think about justice and grace changed. The things I say no to and yes to changed. Sometimes we are the new thing God is doing. There's a prayer I pray almost every morning comes from the United Methodist morning prayer. We prayed it earlier, called a worship. It says, new every morning is your love, great God of light, and all day long you are working for good in the world. Stir up within us the desire to serve you, to live peacefully with our neighbors, and to devote each day to your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I don't remember exactly when or exactly why, to be honest with you, but at some point, I, I added in a line to the prayer. And all day long, you are working for good in the world and in me. All day long, you're working for good in the world and in me. And it's been a reminder to me that God doing new things isn't just something that happens out there, but in me, too. In you, too. The same is true with you, friends. Restoration, renewal, new creation, God working for good is possible in your heart and your soul. Death and resurrection happen every day in us. Because every day God is at work shaping us, making us more holy in love. God is always at work building and renovating and composting and planting and bringing new things to bear. God is always doing a new thing. And yes, sometimes that new thing is us. Let's live like it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.